It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. What do you want in a true crime podcast? Do you want well-researched material, but an easy-to-follow format? Do you want a bit of dark humor, but want sensitive topics handled, well, sensitively? Do you want hosts who are lactose intolerant, but eat macaroni and cheese anyway? Well, I think you might be looking for us. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca, and we're the hosts of the true crime podcast, Yours in Murder. And this isn't any old true crime podcast. I have a background in forensic science. And I have a background in journalism. So we're able to combine our knowledge and bring you interesting new perspectives on cases. Not that we're all serious. We have a bit of a dark sense of humor. Just a bit. I mean, we like morbid jokes and cat jokes. Lots of cat jokes. So if you're looking for something new and a bit out of the ordinary, check out Yours in Murder. You can find us on all of your favorite podcatchers, as well as iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or check out our website at yoursinmurder.net. We hope to see you soon, and until next time, we are Yours in Murder. Listening to the Already Gone podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. This episode discusses graphic details of murder, kidnapping, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Everyone had that one teacher in high school, the one you didn't mind so much because it felt like they liked you. Well, liked may not be the right word. You might say that they got you. They saw you. Not the awkward kid amid a shift to adulthood, but the adult inside of you waiting to graduate and do your thing. I hope that you had the pleasure of learning from this sort of teacher at some point in your education. And today we're talking about one of those teachers, one who really connected with students. A woman who not only educated kids, but cared about them and motivated them. Barbara Blackstone connected with her students. She saw them, and she heard them, and she inspired them. Blackstone didn't get decades in the classroom. She didn't reach thousands of students during her short tenure, because her life was taken when she was just 30 years old. Now, 31 years later... She's been gone longer than she was here. She's remembered, though, by her friends and family and husband. She's remembered by her many students, and not just because of her skills in the classroom or her work on the high school yearbook. She is remembered for the bizarre and terrible story of her demise. Come with me to the summer of 1987, to the town of Linden Station, Wisconsin, when the disappearance of a beloved high school teacher, along with the murders of two local women, set a community on edge. 
Barbara Blackstone was born Barbara Fisher. She grew up in Argyle, Wisconsin with her parents, Lois and Herb, and two sisters, Judy and Gail. Barb was a good student and salutatorian of her high school class when she graduated in 1975. When Barb was in high school, she met the man who would become her husband, Tom Blackstone. He was from Columbus, Ohio, and had traveled to Wisconsin to visit an old friend. That friend happened to be Barb's cousin. The two met, and Tom fell in love, not just with tall, slender, blue-eyed Barbara, but with Wisconsin. The two married three years after they met, settling in Ohio, where Barb worked and attended college, pursuing a business degree. The newlyweds saved their money and moved back to Wisconsin when Barb was in her mid-twenties. They found a piece of property that was perfect for their plans and set to work building their dream home there, about 80 miles from where Barb grew up in Argyle. When they returned to Wisconsin, Barb went looking for work, applying for a substitute teaching position at the local high school. She had a bachelor's degree in business from Ohio State University, and in 1984, the principal hired her for a full-time teaching position at New Lisbon High School. Blackstone would teach business, work as a yearbook advisor, and teach a new class, computer technology. Mark Andreessen, the co-founder of Netscape, would be one of her students. Barb's friend and fellow teacher, Kelly McCann, would tell a local newspaper, quote, Kids were always in her room, before school, after school, at lunch. They liked her. The summer of 1987 marked the end of Barb's third year of teaching full-time. She and husband Tom created a good life for themselves in Wisconsin. They built their home by hand, the two of them, and they lived on an 80-acre piece of property in Juneau County. If you are familiar with the area, the Blackstone home was on Delmore Road near County Road H in Linden Station. Just 10 miles northwest of the famous Wisconsin Dells, and 20 miles southeast of her teaching job in New Lisbon. Wisconsin Dells is a famous tourist attraction, drawing visitors from all over the world, and particularly from the Midwest. The city straddles four counties, Adams, Columbia, Juneau, and Sauk. School let out for the year in June, and teachers' work was done before the month was out, meaning that Barb had six weeks of summer before her. Time to work on the house, spend time with her husband, and enjoy the warm summer weather. She and Tom were preparing for a party at their Linden Station home. They'd invited both friends and family. Barb was really looking forward to the party, since many would be seeing the finished house for the first time, and she wanted everything to be just right. On Thursday, July 9th, Tom went to work at his landscaping job, leaving Barb home with the dog. Her plan for the day was to use the yard tractor to mow the grass on the property, part of the preparations for the big summer party that weekend. When Tom returned from work that evening, he saw Barb's car in its regular spot. Their dog was in the house, but no Barb. He called for her when he came in, but she wasn't there. He went to the yard, the pole barn, then checked the tractor. There was no sign of his wife. When he looked in her car, he found her keys in the ignition and her purse on the seat, but no Barb. Tom placed calls to friends, neighbors, family. No one had heard from her. 
At 9.30 that evening, Tom Blackstone called the sheriff's department to report her missing. The next day, police did a canvas of the area, learning that Barb had stopped by the local filling station Thursday afternoon. She filled her car's tank with fuel and purchased gas to fill a five-gallon can to power the tractor. When Tom checked the tractor, it was out of gas. She'd bought the fuel, but something interrupted her before she could fill it up and resume her chores. Where is Barbara Blackstone? You see, the Dells, meaning the area around Wisconsin Dells, they were already on edge because in June, less than a month before Barb Blackstone vanished, 18-year-old Angela Hackle of Lone Rock disappeared after a night out at a local bar. Hackle was a recent graduate of River Valley High School in Spring Green. On Thursday, June 11th, she'd gone out with friends, spending the evening at a bar. She'd left in the early hours of Friday morning with an unknown man. The teen's family reported her missing the next day. They found her car abandoned out near the airport. Hackle's remains would be discovered on Monday. Okay, for those who don't want graphic details you should skip ahead about 15 seconds. Angela Hackle had been sexually assaulted, strung up on a tree, and shot several times. The fatal shot entered her chest, damaging her heart and lungs. Her dangling body waited in the woods for three days before she was found. Angela Hackle had only been to the dentist twice in her life, once for a chipped tooth. Thankfully, the dentist held on to her scans because the coroner used dental records to positively identify her body. When Barb Blackstone vanished from Linden Station just a couple of weeks later and only 35 miles away, people were worried, especially in light of Angela Hackle's violent death. And there was more violence to come. Before July was over, a third woman was attacked. This time it was 28-year-old Linda Necriner, Necriner lived in Del Prairie, which is 8 to 10 miles east of Linden Station as the crow flies. Because the Wisconsin River runs north to south between the two communities, it's about a 15-mile drive because you have to go north or south to take one of the bridges across. Both Linden Station and Del Prairie are less than 10 miles north of Wisconsin Dells. Linda Necriner was a married mother of two young girls. In July of 1987, her daughters were aged one and two. The last contact anyone had with Linda was a phone call between herself and her mother in the late morning on Tuesday, July 28th. When her mother and sister paid her a visit that evening, about 8 p.m., they found both children in their cribs and no sign of Linda. Linda's husband, Brian, was working out of state. Her family was concerned. Linda was a good mother. She cared about her girls. It was out of character for Linda to leave the girls unattended, even for a few minutes. And while it wasn't specified in news reports of her disappearance, later coverage implied that the house itself was a crime scene, with Linda assaulted and then forcibly removed from her home. On Wednesday morning, searches were organized. Friends, family, and community members gathered at a local restaurant at 9 a.m. to plan their search. They set out soon after. The search was a success, but it also brought a tragic ending as Linda's body was discovered around 11.45 a.m. 
in an area known as Beer Can Alley. The murderer had bound her hands behind her back and shot her execution style. Her body was only partially dressed, and her pants had been placed over her head, concealing her face. The autopsy revealed that she'd been shot with a three fifty seven handgun. This tied her death to a recent break-in at a home in the city of Oxford, which was located about 10 miles east of the Necriner home. Back on July 24th, an intruder broke into the home, killed the family dog, then stole knives and a handgun. Seeking to cover his tracks, the intruder poured liquor on the floor in the kitchen, set the stove burners to high, and draped a kitchen rug over them, creating a fire to cover his tracks. While much evidence was destroyed, he left behind evidence of his crime for police to follow. When law enforcement examined the Necriner home, they found tire tracks that matched tracks left near where her body was recovered. When they searched the home for evidence, they found saliva and semen on a comforter, not far from where a woman's sock and underpants were discarded. If they could find a suspect to match the tire tracks and the biological materials to, they would have the man who murdered Linda Necriner and broke into the Oxford home on July 24th. Necriner's family and friends wouldn't have to wait too long because an arrest would happen in the case the first week of September. When August began, law enforcement had two dead women, a missing school teacher, and little to go on. The community was frightened. Local gun dealers saw an increase in business. People were arming themselves as rumors of a serial killer stalking women churned their way through the community. When police searched the Blackstone home, they found nothing missing, nothing out of place. It did not appear to be a crime scene like the Necriner house. There was no sign of a struggle. It was as if Barbara Blackstone simply evaporated one sunny Thursday afternoon. On August 1st, more than 100 volunteers joined law enforcement to search a five-mile area around the Blackstone home, hoping for some sign of the missing teacher. While her underage students were not allowed to join the search, they were busy papering the community with flyers, hoping that she would be found and brought back safely. Barb's father, Herb Fisher, asked the governor's office for help from the National Guard in locating his daughter. The governor considered his request, but it was not granted. Police spoke again with Barb's sister, Judy. She'd talked to Barb that morning, and she was likely the last person aside from the clerk at the filling station, to speak with Barb that day. Judy reported that Barb was happy, normal, talking about the party planned at their home that weekend, the party she was in the middle of mowing the lawn for when she disappeared. Unlike the search for Linda Necriner, which was successful in that she was located, this search, using hundreds of volunteers and law enforcement, did not turn up anything of interest. Nearly a week later, on August 7th, 1987, law enforcement from several agencies gathered for a meeting. There were three women, two of them violently murdered and one missing in a sparsely populated area. The community was frightened. They believed a serial killer was targeting women. This meeting was attended by the FBI, the Wisconsin State Police, and law enforcement representatives from five counties. They met to discuss their concerns and strategies about Angela Hackle, 
Barbara Blackstone, and Linda Necriner's cases. Then, the phone rang, and everything changed. If you grew up in a family that hunts, you know the importance of finding the right place to do it. You check the woods and look for signs of deer, because if they're hanging out in a specific area in August, you'll likely find them there again when hunting season starts. 25-year-old David Hendrickson was doing just that, exploring a farm owned by Harold and Bonnie Johnson as he planned his strategy for hunting season. The farm was good-sized, 25 to 30 acres, located just outside of Blanchardville in Lafayette County, Wisconsin. This puts us 75 miles or 120 kilometers north of the Blackstone home in Linden Station. The Johnson farm offered plenty of places to explore, to think about setting up a blind. That's when he saw it. Well, what he thought was a deer carcass. Hendrickson walked closer, wanting a better look. Except it wasn't a deer. It was a person. What was left of them after weeks in the warm heat of a Wisconsin summer. Hendrickson discovered what was left of Barbara Blackstone in a wooded area about 30 yards off of Paulson Road. I've read different accounts of the condition of the remains. Some say there was clothing nearby, some list no clothing being recovered. What they do agree on is that between the summer heat and animal activity, there wasn't much left. It appeared that she'd been on her back when the remains were left at the site. From the condition of the body, she'd been out there as long as she'd been missing. The phone call announcing discovery of human remains on a farm in Blanchardville would interrupt the law enforcement meeting. Attendees scrambled to get to the site. The Johnson farm would be cordoned off. Not even the property owners were allowed access as police scoured the area for clues to how the missing schoolteacher made her way nearly 80 miles or 120 kilometers from her home to the Blanchardville area. Barbara Blackstone's body was recovered roughly 10 miles from the community where she grew up. Finding her body answered one question, but it raised many others. Namely, how did she get from her home in Linden Station to the woods outside Blanchardville? Did the proximity to her hometown have any significance? Her father thought it possible that Barb negotiated with her kidnapper, offering the money she kept in an Argyle-area bank in return for her life, and perhaps that is what led them so many miles, at least a 90-minute drive from her home. Blackstone's body was transferred to the Veterans Administration Hospital, and, as with Angela Hackle's case, dental records were used to make a positive ID. Despite a thorough examination of the remains, no cause of death could be determined. While Angela Hackle and Linda Necriner were both shot to death, Hackle with a 22 caliber weapon and Necriner with a 357, it seemed unlikely that Barbara Blackstone was the victim of a shooting. There was not enough soft tissue left to make a determination as to how she died. There was even talk of her death being a suicide, but that conversation did not last long. While they have a body, the Juneau County Sheriff doesn't have a lot to work with. There are no witnesses to her disappearance, except the dog. And the dog isn't talking. There is no sign of a struggle, no crime scene to process. Her remains are badly decomposed, making it unlikely that biological evidence will be obtained. What they do have is a heartbroken husband, a devastated family, and a grieving community. 
including her co-workers and many students. Like Kelly McCann said, Barb's room was a popular place. The kids liked her, and, to her credit, Barb Blackstone liked them as well. Barb's husband, Tom Blackstone, moved out of the couple's house in Linden Station, staying with his brother in Madison. I can't imagine how hard it must have been to be there without her, in the home they literally built together. During the first week of September, police closed in on a suspect in Lyndon Akriner's case, Kim S. Brown, a 36-year-old man who lived with his wife in Oxford. He knew Linda's husband from working together on previous jobs. Police took molds of his vehicle tires, and with his permission, they searched his car, finding a gun, a butterfly knife, and spent shell casings. The gun recovered matched both the murder weapon in Necriner's case, and it was the gun that was stolen during a robbery turned arson a week before Necriner's murder. There was another knife in the car, a folding knife, and hairs on that knife matched the dog that was killed during the Oxford robbery and arson. Police had their man. In May of 1988, 36-year-old Kim Brown pled guilty to first-degree murder, kidnapping, arson, burglary, larceny, and one count of second-degree sexual assault. He offered an apology to the family of Linda Necriner and to Corey and Linda Gage, the owners of the Oxford home he'd robbed and set fire to in the days before he murdered Linda Necriner. In March of 1989, there was an update on the murder of Angela Hackle, Harry Volbrecht, a man who she'd been seen with in the hours before her murder, was arrested, but not everyone was convinced of his guilt. Volbrecht met up with Hackle that night at the bar where she was partying. They talked, they danced, and they left together, looking for an after-party. When they couldn't find one, they sought out a lover's lane. His story is that they had consensual sex, exchanged phone numbers, and she drove him back to his car. Volbrecht insists that this was the last time he saw her, and he left her alive and well. The prosecutor liked him for the murder of Angela Hackle and put him on trial in October of 1989. Even after Volbrecht's conviction for Hackle's murder, friends and family offered rewards for information leading to the person who really did kill Hackle. Volbrecht served more than 20 years in prison before he won a bid for a new trial. He was eventually released, but not before he received a second hearing where he pled no contest and was given time served. The resolution wasn't satisfying for anyone, and it did not bring any new information about the murder of Barbara Blackstone. While he has never been charged in Hackle or Blackstone's cases, I do think it's fair to consider Kim Brown as a possibility for the murder of Angela Hackle in June and the murder of Barbara Blackstone in July. Kim Brown wasn't the only bad guy on the roads of Wisconsin that summer. Let's talk about a story from the Juno Messenger, the local paper that did such an amazing job covering this case. A story from July 2017 outlines a new suspect. You might even call this guy the one that got away. In January of 1988, about six months after Blackstone disappeared, the cops spotted what the paper described as a creeper van parked at the new Lisbon truck stop. They ran the plates and arrested the van's driver, 30-year-old Joseph D. Schmidt, for carrying a concealed weapon. 
Inside of Schmidt's van, they discovered rope, handcuffs, bondage magazines, pornographic magazines, and the worst smell. Sheriff Thompson knew something wasn't right. He ordered that the vehicle be impounded. He wanted crime scene techs to go through it to search for evidence. Thompson was called away from the scene before the van was towed, which became a problem because the van and its disturbing contents were not held properly. When evidence techs arrived the next morning, the scene was contaminated. They couldn't use anything in the vehicle. Schmidt walked. I cannot imagine how frustrating that must have been for Sheriff Thompson and his team. If you're looking for the connection between Barb Blackstone and Joseph Schmidt, the Juno Messenger delivers again. Schmidt liked to hang out at Young's Truck Stop in New Lisbon. This is a place that teachers from New Lisbon High School often went to to grab lunch or coffee. It's possible that the two crossed paths at the truck stop. And this gives me pause. How many people do you see in passing, just a couple times a week? You may consider them a nodding acquaintance, but you don't know them. Not really. What if you ran into one of them at a different location? Would you regard them with suspicion or be pleasantly surprised to see them? Is it possible that when Barbara Blackstone went to buy gas for the tractor, she ran into someone she knew? Or that her killer spotted her there and decided to follow her home? Only to discover she lived in a remote location and was home by herself. A crime of opportunity. Perhaps made easier because she recognized the man who approached her that sunny July day. Sheriff Thompson believed that Blackstone knew the person who killed her. And Joseph Schmidt was not someone you would want to be alone with. In addition to the creeper van with its porn, bondage materials, and horrific smell, he was tied to one of the most notorious sex crimes in Wisconsin history, a case that was overshadowed by the horrific crimes of Jeffrey Dahmer. Schmidt's crime, the one that would get him off the streets for good, occurred in 1991, a story that swirled through the national news. It was known as the Sex Slave Case. This involved one of Schmidt's friends, a teenage girl who had recently given birth. She was in a tough spot, mother to a new baby and not getting along with her live-in boyfriend, the baby's father. How she and Schmidt knew each other was not clear, but in 1990, she lived in Schmidt's house. It was not a romantic or sexual relationship. The two were just housemates. When things weren't working out between herself and the baby's father, Schmidt offered that she could stay with him again, and she arrived, baby in tow. She thought they were returning to their previous arrangement, where she watched his kid and cooked and cleaned for room and board. She didn't know that things had changed. Schmidt handcuffed her, telling her she would be his sex slave, and she struggled, breaking the cuffs. This sent Schmidt into a rage, and he used chains and padlocks to bind her. Then he strapped a dog leash around her neck. Brandishing a gun and threatening to harm her or her infant if she didn't cooperate, Schmidt held her for several days, forcing her to watch pornography. He took explicit photos of her and he assaulted her repeatedly. A few days later, when her name hit the paper as a missing person, he panicked and released her, and she fled to the police department to report her ordeal. After his arrest, Schmidt was desperate to get out of the charges he was facing. 
While in jail awaiting trial, he made arrangements with another inmate, one that was set to be released. He solicited this inmate to get rid of the young woman. He didn't want her dead. He suggested that the inmate plant drugs on the victim or transport her out of state. He was desperate to discredit her or remove her from the vicinity so he could avoid prosecution. His plan didn't work. The inmate wanted no part of Schmidt's plot. Instead of seeking out the girl to carry out Schmidt's plans, the inmate reported him to authorities. At the trial, the 19-year-old testified against Schmidt, detailing the abuse she'd endured at the hands of someone she once trusted and considered a friend. As part of the prosecution's case, the jury was even transported to Schmidt's home to see where the young woman was held and assaulted. Schmidt's attorney said it was all a story. She'd made it up. She'd been a willing participant in the encounters, and he pointed out that if she'd been bound and held against her will, she should have been covered in bruises. The defense lined up a medical expert to testify to her lack of injuries. Schmidt took the stand, claiming the sex was consensual, and that she agreed to be chained up, to watch pornography, to dress in lingerie for him, and to participate in sex. The jury deliberated for half a day before finding Schmidt guilty of kidnapping, false imprisonment, four counts of first-degree sexual assault, and six counts of sexual contact. He faced more than 200 years in prison. I believe that Schmidt was sentenced to 85 years and will not be eligible for parole until 2020, when he is 63 years old. Going back again to the Juno Messenger, they reported that this was not the first time Schmidt engaged in this sort of behavior. They reported on an older charge, dating back to 1978, when Schmidt was about 21 years old. Schmidt picked up two teenage girls. It's unclear if they were hitchhiking, or if he came across them and offered them a ride, or if he invited them to come hang out. But when he had them alone, he tied them up and sexually assaulted them. The charges against him were dropped, and he served no time. I couldn't find a reason for him not being charged in this attack. If I had to guess, I would say that in 1978, people were more likely to perceive the victims in a less sympathetic light. Or perhaps the families or the victims themselves didn't want the publicity of a trial. When you look at what he allegedly did in 1978, and what he was convicted of in 1991, you see the pattern of a sexual predator. One can only imagine what he might have done in the years between 78 and 91. What did he get away with? I don't think it's a stretch to consider that Schmidt could be responsible for the deaths of Angela Hackle or Barbara Blackstone. The Juneau County Sheriff's Department considers the 1987 murder of Barbara Blackstone an open case. They are still looking for tips and information about her murder. Even if you've spoken with them before, if you have information about the case, please call. There is a $30,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of her killer. Contact the Juneau County Sheriff's Department at 608-847-5649. Kim Brown is serving life in prison at the New Lisbon Correctional Facility. Joseph Schmidt is serving his sentence at the Wapun Correctional Institution, both in Wisconsin. Special thanks to Eva at the Juno Messenger. Not only did she do a fantastic job covering this story, she was kind enough to answer my questions. 
If you want to do additional reading on the cases covered here, I've included links on our website. Already Gone is a true crime podcast focused on Michigan and the Great Lakes region. Find more information on this story, including photos and links to some of our research at www.alreadygonepodcast.com. You can find us on Facebook, where we have a page and a discussion group. We are also on Twitter at AlreadyGonePod. If you would like to support the podcast, please find us on Patreon. If you have questions, comments, or feedback, email me, host at AlreadyGonePodcast.com. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. Thank you for listening, and please be safe.